Imagine if you could capture carbon and put it into the ground or even utilize it. Well, it sounds like science fiction, but in fact, it's just science. This is a well-established technology. We've used it since the 20s or 30s in submarines. We've used it since the 60s in spacecraft. It was central to the movie Apollo 13. They suddenly had to pull CO2 out of the capsule that they were all working in. The question is, can you do it at large scale and can you do it at modest cost? Today I'm speaking with Dr. Julio Friedman. Dr. Friedman is one of the world's leading experts on carbon removal, CO2 conversion and use, as well as carbon capture and sequestration. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Julio Friedman, a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy, where he leads their Carbon Mitigation Research Initiative. Dr. Friedman is one of the world's leading experts on carbon removal, CO2 conversion and use, as well as carbon capture and sequestration. He received his PhD in geology, but has enjoyed an illustrious career in both academia, politics and the business world. Most prominently, he was responsible for President Obama's research and development program for carbon capture, storage and utilization from 2013 to 2016. In my conversation with Dr. Friedman, we talk about how CCUS can help us stem climate change, how the technology can develop, and what are the most important barriers that we need to tackle. Hello, sir. Greetings. Great to have you on, on the podcast. It's an honor and a great pleasure. Thank you so much. I, I read your CV and, and you, of course, are now uh, famous worldwide for your work on CCUS and via that also your fight against climate change. But you actually started your career at ExxonMobil, not exactly a company that's considered a green frontrunner. How did your career uh, develop the way it did? Uh, so actually the way anyone's career develops, which is unexpectedly. Yes. Um, <laughs> I had very much planned to be a musician. My original undergraduate degree is in composing. Oh. Um, and Yes, and then I discovered geology, and I fell in love with that and did very well. And when I was, I very much expected to become a professor. And when I started to work for Exxon, I went there strongly believing one thing, which is that I would learn a lot. And I did. Mm. And in fact, everything I learned at Exxon, everything I learned at Exxon, including how do companies think, Yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, how yeah, to yeah. what skills are necessary to work in the subsurface? I immediately began to apply that in my current work. And one of the important things to understand is, from a jobs perspective and from a labor perspective, the skills in oil companies are very valuable skills. There's chemical engineering, there's big project finance operations, all of these things, and we actually need those skills for the energy transition. Uh, and something that I find personally in my own life very mm. valuable mm. about CCUS 
is that I can take those skills that I learned in the oil patch and use them to tackle a frontline environmental challenge. I read somewhere that you can actually claim personally to be responsible for keeping 15 million tons of CO2 out of the air and oceans every year. That's, that's quite impressive. Can you, can you explain? Uh, let me start by saying that's a team effort. Uh, but certainly, uh, I've ha- played a substantial role in this. Uh, I managed a program at the Department of Energy that scaled up a number of large projects, uh, including many that are operating today. Uh, two of them are still capturing and storing two million tons a year of CO2. Um, but I've helped uh, manage and operate other projects uh, over the course of my career. I have had the good fortune to work on Schleipner Field uh, in Norway to work on Snowvit in Norway, uh, to work in Insala in uh, uh, Algeria, to work in Weyburn in Canada and other projects. Uh, so uh, I have helped move things along uh, with a lot of other people's money and other people's hard work. Well, that's uh, that's uh, modest of you, uh, to put it that way. And of course, a very, very impressive uh, effort. I think for most people, uh, the idea that you can take carbon out of the smoke and put it into the ground is seen as science fiction, something that we might be able to do sometime in the future. But actually, you and your team and your different uh, partners have shown that we we have the science. We can do it already now. So maybe you can start by uh, helping me explain to the listeners what exactly it is we're talking about here. CCUS the carbon capture, utilization, and storage. What what kind of a technology are we talking about? We're actually talking about a well-established commercial technology that has a lot of supply chains and infrastructure and has been operating for many, many years. The most important thing to know about carbon capture and storage is we have been doing it successfully for a long, long time. Uh, the first CO2 capture was done in 1938, The first CO2 injection underground was done in 1972, and the first large-scale CCUS project began in 1996 and has been running continuously since. And people are surprised when they hear these things, but the fundamental basis of CCUS is very simple. If we take the carbon out of the ground, we put it back in the ground. And it, that's kind of all there is to it. Well, yeah, that's a sim- that's a very simple way of putting it, and I and and I, and I like yeah, how you remind us that actually we've we've been doing this for decades. But the reason why we don't do it more than we do is, of course, that it's very expensive, and even though we know how to do it, it's still a quite difficult thing to do. Why is it that not all companies and countries? just use this technology, then we are all fighting to to reduce uh, emissions uh, to the atmosphere of, of carbon. So why is it that this technology is not more used than it is? Uh, I will answer that question clearly in a moment. But in fact, we are starting to see much more interest in this technology again. Uh, and I can explain that too. But the primary reason why we haven't seen it is not so much a question of cost as it is often portrayed. It's two sides of a coin, but it's not really cost. One aspect is its finance. And you know, it, it, we have provided enormous incentives for clean energy of all kinds. We have just never provided an incentive for carbon capture and storage. And so people haven't done it because cleaning up the mess costs more than not cleaning up the mess. 
This is the flip side of the coin. When you're making clean electricity or when you're making clean hydrogen, you're making something. With carbon capture and storage, you're not making something, you're just keeping it clean. And so there has not been this sort of sense that you're being productive. And so it looks like a penalty, even though what it is, is a cheap and effective way to reduce emissions. Yeah, so we, we need uh, some way of creating a market where you also have economic incentives to utilize this technology. And I guess uh, one way of doing it is the way that we are hoping to to be able to do it in Denmark, which is providing basically public funding for modernizing and scaling up the technology so that we can use it in some of our biggest sources of, of CO2 emissions as it is. But I guess we also need this to be a part of the European carbon trading system in, in some way so that we combine the fact that the price of, of uh, CO2 emissions is going up with the fact that we actually have a technology that can help us. Uh, absolutely. And it has been a very... Uh, great gratifying for me to see Europe's renewed interest in this technology, um, especially given their long history of success in Norway and to a lesser extent other countries. Um, in the United States, we have a market aligning policy. We have an invest. I'm sorry, a production tax credit essentially uh, called 45Q, which provides financial returns for not emitting, and that has created now a drive for a large number of projects. In Europe, it seems like this is beginning first with, I think, in a very important technology application, which is low-carbon hydrogen production. And here, because uh, the lowest-cost way of making zero-carbon hydrogen involves CCUS, uh, that, again, looks like you're making something, and so that looks like a policy that's supporting. And the hydrogen itself has many applications in industry, in transportation, uh, uh, potentially as an export fuel. Uh, in heating, in all of these things. And so uh, uh, the thing that Europe is grappling with now is really who pays for these things. And the most important thing is the infrastructure. And once you put the infrastructure in place, which always requires government funding, then that makes it much easier to continue and build. Maybe we should just break it down also for the listeners. We're talking about different technologies here, really, because we're talking about Uh, ways of taking the carbon out of the smoke, so to speak. Uh, and then what happens to it afterwards can differ. You can store it or you can choose to utilize it. And if you choose to utilize it, uh, it might be a good idea to look into uh, what's called Power2x, which is a technology where you take renewables uh, via a, a process. You make the renewables into first hydrogen and then maybe later into, for instance, uh, e-fuels that you can use to sail a ship or fly a plane or drive a heavy truck. Now, if if that happens, we, we have the technology to do it now, but if we also manage to scale that technology Uh, in a way that it's uh, possible to to actually introduce to the market in, in in a scale that actually matters, then then we've solved a lot of problems in our energy systems. Really, do you think that's that's feasible that that will happen within a decade, for instance? Uh, it's hard work, but it's absolutely feasible. Um, and Europe, in northern Europe in particular, but Denmark in particular, is blessed with an abundance of renewable resource: hydropower, offshore wind in particular. Um, and this abundance is something that can be harvested and used. Uh, we have seen already some successful applications of what you've called power to X uh, in Sweden, where they're basically taking spare electrons, 
converting it to hydrogen, and then using that hydrogen to make steel. And uh, that is only one of the many things you can make. You can make ammonia, which is a fuel that can be used on ships. So you can have zero carbon shipping. Uh, you can use it to make a synthetic methane or a synthetic jet fuel to substitute for the fossil fuels. And what is of great interest recently, in part because of the IPCC's uh, recent reports, is the notion that you can pull CO2 out of the air or pull CO2 out of the ocean and make a circular carbon economy with this power to X. And that is a compelling, strong, positive vision of the future that I think we can pursue. So now we're not talking about only taking carbon out of the chimneys and the smoke, but we're talking about taking carbon actually out of the air, basically, or oceans. Is that also uh, something that, that we're looking into as a feasible technology within a, a few years, or is that further ahead in the future? So again, this is a well-established technology. We've used it since the 20s or 30s in submarines. We've used it since the 60s in spacecraft. It was central to the movie Apollo 13. They suddenly had to pull CO2 out of the capsule that they were all working in. Um, the question is, can you do it at large scale and can you do it at modest cost? And the good news about technology and innovation is that costs go down. Over time, costs go down. That happened with offshore wind, that happened with solar, that happening batteries, that's happened with LEDs, and we can do the same thing. We can reduce the cost of carbon capture from smokestacks, and we can reduce the cost of carbon capture from the air. Well, you're right about those other technologies, because when we uh, established the first offshore wind farm in in, uh, in the world, a lot of people were shaking their heads saying, that's a very expensive way to create energy. And it was. But of course, today, offshore wind competes with uh, nuclear and, and even coal in most places on, on Earth. So that's an example of what you can do if you invest in a technology that has prospects and where you can see a clear market and also possibility of developing technology. What we are seeing is that people are beginning to understand with CCUS that it looks like other clean energy technologies. Yeah, It supports organized labor. There's industrial strategy and industrial policy. It improves competitiveness. Mm. Uh, if you can decarbonize steel production or chemical production, then you can have a, a strategy to deal with carbon tariffs, or you can create a green product that people will pay for a higher premium. And if you can make these e-fuels, these synthetic fuels, then you have a way to decarbonize jet pl planes that yeah. are very, very hard to decarbonize any other way. And you can manage agricultural emissions for which we have no solution today. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, people are beginning to see the reason I've been so optimistic for so long, is that it, it's fundamentally doable. And so if, every time somebody says, we can't do that, I'm like, we've already done that. <laughs> so it's not that <laughs> yeah. hard. So we, we have a technology that's been there for decades. We know how to use it. We know that we need it. How do we then scale it? How, how do we make sure that we can use it in a way that it's actually a very big part of the solution to the problems we have? So the same question was asked before about offshore wind and solar. And so what the solution was, was let's put money into R&D, then we're going to provide a feed-in tariff, then we're going to provide grants, then the government's going to build infrastructure, and we're going to do training programs, and we're going to have a contract for differences. And after all of that, suddenly it was cheap, <laughs> and suddenly it could scale. Like, of course, it will be exactly the same way with this. 
the idea that you try it once and it doesn't succeed immediately and you run away uh, is pointless because we still know we have to do it. And if I have to choose between uh, engineering energy systems and engineering people, I'm going to choose to engineer the energy system because people are much harder to engineer. <laughs> that is true. I like your optimism. Is it going fast enough, though? I mean, if you look at at all the different scientific work being being done on what we need to do to stay below 1.5 degrees uh, increase in, in temperature, it it certainly doesn't it certainly doesn't look like it's going fast enough. Oh no, we we are not going fast enough. Um, and I want to be clear about this: we need much more energy efficiency. We need much more renewable energy of all kinds. Right? We need electric vehicles, and we need. Uh, Uh, to ways to decarbonize. We need biomass and biofuels. The fact that we need to do a great deal more and that people are really understanding that is exactly why CCS has come back. Because it's clear that some sectors are very hard to decarbonize without it. Things like cement and steel, it's just very hard, or jet plane. Um, and because we're out of time and we have to go faster. And if we have to go faster, it looks like more. So a country like the Netherlands makes a very ambitious climate policy, and then they turn around and go, what can we do? Where's the tons? And they go, oh, my God, we got to do a whole bunch of CCS on top of everything else we're doing. And that, again, uh, gives me optimism, because the first step forward is acknowledging the challenge. Yeah, well, I, I, I totally agree with you. One of the criticisms that we as a government uh, sometimes face is that Hmm, you are focusing too much on technologies that will help us in the future. Instead, you should be focusing on changing behavior now on, on the short term. Obviously, my point is that we need to do both. But is there a danger, though, if we are to be the devil's advocate, is there a danger that if we spend too much money investing in these uh, technologies that, that will be able to help us in the future, we risk making the wrong investment decisions and we risk not focusing on things that we could just do here and now, uh, or, or how do you see it? So let's be clear. We just need to do a whole lot more of everything. The argument that you put forward is already a false statement that we can choose. You know, We should only focus on one thing that works and not the other thing. We already know we need all these things. The math is very compelling. <laughs> But the other thing is, um, I, I sort of, I keep coming back to this. There's no one way to lose weight. Like we just, there's so many things we have to do. And all of the technologies we use today face the same criticism 25 years ago. Offshore wind, solar, LEDs, batteries. Everyone was saying they're too expensive. They will never work. They can't possibly scale. And after a lot of investment, a lot of failures, a lot of false starts, a lot of lost businesses, we have succeeded. And, and in order to really turn the corner on climate change, in order to create a just transition to a green and verdant world, we're going to have to do that on every front. There's nothing we can ignore. Another discussion that's, that's out there is uh, whether or not it's good when companies or even when governments pick the winners so to speak, or if we should let independent scientists and basically the market uh, decide where to go. Now, it 
probably pretty obvious what I think. I think that it's a political obligation to try and pick the winners because if we don't just wait for the market to solve the problem, then first of all, it might not happen. And if it does, it probably will happen too late. But but can you elaborate maybe from, from your background in, in America? Obviously, uh, the political climate there is a little bit different than in, in most European countries. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on, on that discussion? Sure. So uh, my former boss, uh, Secretary Ernie Moniz, said, we don't pick winners and losers, we only pick winners. <laughs> well, in that case, it's easy. <laughs> exactly. But this is the thing. Like, and what I, one of the things that gives me some optimism, again, with respect to the political climate in the United States, is that clean energy innovation has strong bipartisan support. Uh, since 2010, at the end of the financial crisis, the budgets for clean energy innovation has, have grown every year substantially, and they've been supported by Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and in the House. And they have done so in larger volumes than the Obama administration asked for, and they have done so in larger volumes than the Trump administration has asked for. And the reason why is because it yields dividends. It, it, it actually, it creates technologies, it puts people to work, we make discoveries. Um, and so at our best, that's a good path forward. Well, that's a very, uh, very positive note to uh, to end on, Dr. Friedman. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, this was a very interesting conversation, and uh, good luck with your endeavors. It was very much my pleasure, Minister, and I wish you all success in everything you do. And if you need any help, you know where I live. Thank you so much. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.